You're listening to Now I've Heard Everything, interviews from the 80s, 90s, and 2000s with voices from the past. Nobody joins a cult. You don't go into something thinking it's going to kill you. You you join something, you go into a relationship even, and you can find yourself entrapped, imprisoned, that you don't know how to extricate yourself safely. People's Temple survivor Deborah Layton. Today on Now I've Heard Everything, I'm Bill Thompson. It was news that stunned the entire world this week in 1978. Inspired by a charismatic but deranged man named Jim Jones, over 900 people, including over 300 children, had committed mass suicide at the People's Temple compound in Jonestown, Guyana. Many had died after drinking a soft drink laced with cyanide. It was later identified, mistakenly, some people say, as Kool-Aid, and that popularized the phrase drinking the Kool-Aid, which has come to mean blindly following a dangerous leader or way of thinking. But one young woman, Deborah Layton, managed to escape Jonestown, although her brother Larry was not so lucky. More on that in a moment. Well, it took her 20 years, but finally Deborah wrote a book about the Jonestown horror and her experience with it and escape from it. The book was called Seductive Poison, and that's when I had a chance to meet her. So here now from 1998, Deborah Layton. Well, after being silent for 20 years and ashamed and not wanting people to know who I was or where I'd been, my daughter, when she was four, started asking questions, and I realized that for her sake, I needed to go back so that I could explain it to her. I needed to understand it for myself. And maybe help re-explain it to yourself. I mean, it must have seemed at times like when you were writing this book, almost like you were writing about a whole other lifetime. I did have to sink to write it. That You know, I did try to write it from, you know, where I am now. I'm a mom, and, you know, I'm different, and it didn't work. And I... I did have to sink. I actually went to, I, I rented a house just for a week at Stinson Beach in the middle of winter. It was miserable outside. I played ghastly music and became very depressed and, and was able to sink down to remember. And then I was able to hang on to that voice when I came home to finish the book. It must have been very painful for you to go through all that just for a book. Well, you know, it felt, it wasn't just a book. For me, this was something, it was, giving a gift to my daughter, the gift of honesty, um, that I was, I was changing her legacy, that my mother, when she escaped from Nazi Germany and, and decided at the age of 23 not to tell anybody that she was Jewish, that innocent secret I had then incorporated into my own life. I didn't know I was Jewish till I was 16 and being sent away for boarding school. And I think Having all those secrets in my life, well-intentioned though they may have been, they festered within my mother. They troubled me because I didn't understand why things didn't make sense. Why did she have a pretty German accent? How come I knew nothing about her history? And I think it sent my mother, myself, and my brother into an organization that offered answers. And I realized by my keeping who I was a secret for my daughter that when she asked me questions, I'd, I, you know, I'd try to think of different things to say that, that here, trying to protect her ascent into American society was actually possibly setting her up for joining an organization that could harm her. 
it is important for us to know who you are in order for us to understand how you joined the People's Temple and how many other people joined it. Because, it, as you point out in the book, many people have the stereotype of the kind of person who joins what eventually becomes a cult. It's not a crazy, wacko, it's not some marginally balanced person. These are very normal, very nice, good, hardworking people. What I wanted to do besides explain to my daughter how it was a 17-year-old got in, you know, why at the age of 20 when I'm made this financial secretary and I'm flying to Panama and Switzerland, what was it that kept me from leaving when I was afraid? The other side of it is everybody that joined, they, they were looking for meaning in their lives. Whether they were 80-year-olds and uneducated, they were still bright. Whether they were college kids and it was the end of the war in Vietnam, it was the 60s and 70s, we were all looking to to delve into something bigger than ourselves, that we wanted meaning in our life, it isn't unusual. I mean, Aristotle was looking for meaning in his life 2,500 years ago. And it's over time that these organizations can change. And there are a lot of groups out there that front as self-help organizations. Nobody joins a cult. You don't go into something thinking it's going to kill you. You you join something, or, or, you go into a relationship. Even it can happen when you're you know you really enjoy the person. They're wonderful. There's a couple of things that are kind of iffy, but but they're so kind. And you and, tell yourself no relationship is perfect. Exactly, and you can find yourself entrapped, imprisoned, even in a relationship. And it becomes abusive. It happens in families that you don't know how to extricate yourself safely, those of your loved ones and yourself. And it can happen in a job. Mine was extreme. I mean, I joined a self-help organization. It was it was a church. The People's Temple was well-known in San Francisco. Mayor Moscone spoke from our pulpit. Rosalind Carter unwittingly, unknowingly came and sat at a dinner with Jim Jones. And because she had been present there, Jim used that to pull more people into the organization. And And over time... It was that little inner voice of ours. When when I joined People's Temple and other organizations do this, they tell you to turn down that little inner voice of yours, that it's selfishness, that yes, things are hard, and for the greater good of mankind, we need to do this, that, or the other thing. And and it is hard, so turn that little selfishness down because that it's egocentric. And that's your reasoning ability. And over time, it's muted, and you can't think clearly any longer. Some of the chilling passages in your book when you describe arriving in Guyana and realizing what you were facing, that this was not like what you thought it was going to be. Yeah, when I first arrived in Guyana, in the capital, 250 miles away, it was in a civilization as opposed to Jonestown, which I hadn't gotten to. When they took my passport away, I realized something was awry, but I didn't know what. When my mother and I, after 30 hours of you know, horrendous hours uh, on a boat, a Jonestown a People's Temple boat that went over the ocean and up a river for nine hours, when uh, halfway up that river the captain of the boat came out, a member of the temple of Jonestown, and said, all the letters you've collected for love, loved ones in Jonestown must be handed in immediately. That was my next huge, you know, exclamation points and screams were coming out of my head. 
you know, what could be dangerous? What could be awful about letters from loved ones for the people inside Jonestown? But the reason they weren't allowed in is so that everyone there thought that they had been forgotten. And uh, once we arrived in Jonestown, when my mother and myself and other people who had been flown in while we were in the capital came in with us on this boat ride, when we arrived in Jonestown at one in the morning, it was an encampment. There were armed guards, what I had imagined and envisioned of beautiful homes and verandas across the countryside. It felt like a military base. There were, there were tents and posts and, and, um, it wasn't a promised land, not with armed guards. Now, we, we've all seen the news footage. It didn't look like much of a paradise to me. Yeah, but see, when we were in the United States, photographs and movies came back from Jonestown, and they were beautiful. Maybe the same house was filmed many times, I don't know, but I envisioned it to that I'd have a house with my mother or ne next to her, that I, I'd be sitting on my veranda in the evening, that that my boyfriend from boarding school in England, who whom I had had an arrange, Jim arranged a marriage so he wouldn't be sent back to England, that I'd see him there. All these dreams that every single person had going in there, they were extinguished. Now, what prevents a person for, at that point from saying, excuse me, guys, I've gotten in over my heads, I think I'm just going to take the next plane back? <laughs> I wish it could have been so easy. Yeah, well, see, that's the thing. The, the public perception is, why didn't why didn't you yeah, just, you know... Well, well, you know, once you got down there, Jim didn't want anyone to leave. Once he, once you saw that encampment and the armed guards, you couldn't leave because if you did, you could tell somebody that it isn't the promised land. You could go to the authorities and say, this is, people are being held against their will there. Yes, every single one of us went there with our eyes open, but we were lied to. We were deceived, and once in Jonestown, everyone was made a captive. Now, eventually, though, you did make it out, and you did give a warning. You told people what was coming. You, you warned us of a mass suicide that was coming. Didn't anybody listen to you? No, I mean, yes, yes and no. I mean, it was a, when I escaped, I didn't escape from the interior. From inside Jonestown, there was no escape. Um... Not, not, you know, not, not with the bars, you know, the, the, the jungle imprisoned us, the guards with the guns, they weren't bad kids. You know, they were being told that they were protecting us from the evil mercenaries in the jungle who were trying to come in and kill us. I mean, we were so indoctrinated. It's like the, it's like the, the country of China under the Cultural Revolution and Mao, thousands of millions of people were, were being forced into this one way of life because they were so frightened to speak up against him because those that were, were imprisoned. And in Jonestown, there was dissent, and every single one of those brave souls were made examples of. You know, I didn't stand up and say, stop this. When my mother was being confronted, I sat there rigid, frightened, petrified that if I were to stand up and say, stop, then Jim would realize at that moment I wasn't a believer, and he would have had me drugged and put in a in, in the in a medical unit, and I would never have been allowed or able to escape. After this short break, Deborah Layton describes the disturbing truth about herself that she discovered.
start your day with Now I've Heard Everything. We post new episodes every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at 5 o'clock a.m. Eastern Time. Subscribe now so you'll have something fresh to listen to and get your day going. Now back to my 1998 interview with Deborah Layton. I mean, that's, I think, what haunts me now. The dark side of each of us that so few of us have ever had to know that is there, that the only way you'll ever know that you have that is if you're, if you go into a concentration camp. I mean, you know, and I mean, it was worse in, in, in Germany and Auschwitz and what have you, but the only analogy I can make is, is if you're in, you're in a situation you're with your family, somebody breaks into your house, they're holding a knife against your neck, they're telling your wife to do something, you're trying to figure out what to do, how can you save your children? It's you are not thinking clearly, and that's what it was like inside Jonestown. People wanted out, and they were afraid to say anything. I now know what my dark side is, when I will speak up, when I won't. My book actually starts um, with a quote from Viktor Frankl in, in, from his book, Man's Search for Meaning. We who have come back by the aid of many lucky chances or miracles, whatever one may choose to call them, we know the best of us did not return. And just meaning that the kind, the sweet, the innocent, those that stood up and, and said, stop, they were injured, they were killed, they were imprisoned. And those of us, myself, who were able to hold on to that little bit of deceit, we were the ones who could make it back. Have you had to deal with survivor's guilt? Yeah, I do. Um, and I think I feel it a lot that my brother, Larry Layton, is the one who's imprisoned for the madness of all of us momentary insanity by all of us, unwitting pawns and Jim's master game against us, that he's being held in prison in, under a life sentence and that I'm on the outside when I was just as guilty as he. If you had been there that day, it could just as well have been the gun in your hand as his. Well, and, you know, wh wh where people are confused is Larry did not kill a single person at the airstrip. It was the kids on the flatbed truck that came in after Larry went to the airstrip, and they were the ones that killed Leo Ryan and the reporters and 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 the news and the cameramen. Larry was there, and he did have a gun. He did injure two people, and they begged for leniency. They were witnesses for the prosecution, and they wrote letters to the judge begging for leniency, that Larry should not be held accountable for the insanity of that moment. And and the judge, too, presided over both of Larry's trials, the first one 11 to 1 for acquittal, and the second one he was convicted, and four of the jurors wrote begging for leniency that had I been there, had I been in Jonestown, had I not been able to escape, I would have been on that flatbed truck with the kids because... It's hard to understand from here, but from their vantage point, from our skewed world of living inside a labor camp under fear and only Jim telling us what the world, what was happening in the outside world, they believed that, that the people coming in were going to kill their families and they thought that they're being heroic by going out there and stopping it. And it is, it's, it's an impossible to understand. 
you know, the, the young men who were in Vietnam, as frightening as it was, they've come back too haunted, that they were afraid, that they shot at children because they were told that they might be carrying bombs, that they were innocent babies. They couldn't have known that. And that's exactly the mind, you know, that's, that is how each person in Jonestown felt. Now, you actually went back to Jonestown over the summer. I went back um, with a film crew. And it was amazing. As we flew in, it was interesting because in the in the plane from hundreds of feet above, I was able to look down upon this unending jungle that we flew over for over an hour. And as I saw that river that we came up that took us nine hours and it went four miles one way and then switched back to another five miles another way, I realized from up there with clarity and hindsight that it was evil that Jim chose this place. It was so inhospitable. When we got into Jonestown, my mother died in Jonestown. She died 10 days before everyone else of lung cancer, and it was Larry with her the entire time. I mean, well, you go into shock, I think, when you lose a a family member. He was with her the whole time. Jim had taken all my mother's pain medication when I was there. That she, you know, lung, that lung cancer goes into your brain, that she was in extreme pain. So when, when they asked me to come with them, this film crew, I went down there armored with pictures of my daughter and my brother. And, and because my mother died 10 days before everyone else, she was buried there. Her body never came back. And, you know, I, I I was bracing myself for over, you know, just being overwhelmed with emotion. And when we got into Jonestown, it was strange. There, there, there are no structures left, no buildings, nothing. But where the, where the pavilion once stood is the only place the jungle has not grown, where all the bodies lay. And I realized as I stood there, you know, having thought I was going to look for her grave and, and, and talk to her and show her how I've reconstructed my life, that she was not there either. That if there is such a thing of essence of people or, or spirit, they have fled. They are not there. They went back to where they, the places they loved. And in a way, it was a relief to me that I didn't have to leave my photographs or my, my piece of my daughter's little nanny blanket that she used to suck her thumb with. So many of us, parents of teenagers, we worry about every little thing that they get into. I mean, are there are there warning signs? Should we be concerned? I well, I you know I think the warnings. I mean, there, there's a couple things. One, never ever cut off ties to your kids. My father no matter what. Even when I said, oh, Jim said this and Jim said this, he would say, that's fine, honey, but did you research it? Is that anything you thought of on your own? But he never cut ties from me. Whenever I spoke to him on the phone in the United States or visited him, which was only very occasionally because we weren't allowed to see family members, he always told me he loved me. And I think where you need to be worried is when you go into an organization and they tell you theirs is the only right way and the family members and the friends you've had before them aren't like we are and they're not a good idea to stay, it's not a good idea to stay in touch with them. When your leader is the only one who's right, when he's the only one enlightened and you shouldn't question him, when, when you're going outside of yourself 
to find all your answers, that's when you need to be worried. Larry Layton was paroled in 2002 after serving more than 20 years in prison. Now, you can get a copy of Seductive Poison by Deborah Layton by clicking on the link in our show notes or by going to our website, heardeverything.com. We may earn an Amazon commission if you make a purchase. And while you're at heardeverything.com, don't miss my 1988 interview with someone else who had to deal with a very charismatic and dangerous man, her own father. John Walker Jr. was the leader of the Walker family spy ring, so we'll revisit my 1988 interview with Laura Walker. I think that most people believe that my dad was just sort of a mousy kind of guy who thought he was a James Bond and... He was extremely intelligent, and he and he could pull off the James Bond because he just seemed to have that ability. He was a pretty evil man. And my 1992 conversation with Ted Bundy's last lawyer, Polly Nelson. It's easy to show compassion for people that are deserving, but true compassion is shown when the subject is undeserving. And Ted seemed the least deserving of all. And of course, we post new episodes of Now I've Heard Everything every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And you can find us anywhere you listen to podcasts. And thank you so much for listening. Next time on Now I've Heard Everything, with the upcoming 60th anniversary of one of the most tragic days in American history, the assassination of John F. Kennedy in Dallas, Texas. My 1993 interview with historian and author Gerald Posner. These doubts and questions raised become facts. They get repeated so many times. Could Oswald have had the time to fire the three shots? And later that becomes he didn't have enough time. And then it becomes no marksman in the world could have fired the shots that Oswald fired in the necessary time. And he wasn't a good marksman. The rifle was terrible. And they become ingrained as part of our consciousness. That's next time on Now I've Heard Everything. I'm Bill Thompson. Thompson.